According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, we got a good start on it a week ago, introducing uh, the chapter. It's a powerful chapter. In fact, a lot of folks got excited when they first heard that... uh, we were going to do a Hebrews study back in the day because uh, they were all excited about Hebrews 4.12, that the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, we're going to get there, all right? We're going to get there. Um, it is verse 12, uh, and we've got 11 verses to get to that leads into that, and uh, very significantly leads into that. The warnings that are given, let us fear. Therefore, let us fear, if while a promise remains of entering His rest... Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And that's the warning. And so you need to fear, I need to fear, we all need to fear because any one of us may fall short. And even if we don't fall short, it might seem to us that we have fallen short. And so we want to make certain that we are keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon the Father to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning, thankful for your grace and truth. Thankful, Father, that uh, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, Father, you are the faithful one, and you never you never lose anything in your plan, Father. You never miss an hour. You never uh, forget to change your clock. Father, your, uh, your plan is perfect, and you go forth in, in accomplishing your good pleasure to glorify your Son, to bless us, to, to bring us from the cross to the crown. So, Father, um, teach us these principles, open our eyes to these applications, foster within each one of us the fear of the Lord that this verse uh, commands. I thank you, Father, and I praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so as we deal with this promise, and we talked about these principles a week ago, the let us fear uh, imperative, the author includes himself in this. He's very fond of this, these cohortative expressions that are in the first person plural. Uh, They're not second person plural imperatives where somebody is barking orders at somebody else, telling telling y'all, you guys do this. The author includes himself, and he says, let us do this. And so he involves himself in, in so many of these commands throughout the book, of uh, of hebrews and so this is what we see here let us fear and the author of hebrews whoever it is if it's luke if it's barnabas if it's paul whoever the author of hebrews is he includes himself in this exhortation that he doesn't want to lose his fear of the lord because fear of the lord is a prime attitudinal prerequisite if we're going to have any uh, acceptable function before god we cannot do it if we've lost the fear of the lord and so the fear of the Lord is a prime attitudinal prerequisite for our acceptable function, whether that's priestly function that Hebrews represents, or it's our soldier function, or it's an ambassadorial function. Whatever function we're trying to operate in in the Christian way of life, when we lose the fear of the Lord, forget it. It's game over at that point. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so we have to start there, and it's attitudinal. Even before actions, before words, even before thinking, Attitude shapes thinking, so the thoughts themselves become impacted if we lose the fear of the Lord. And so we talk about that. It is an ever-present potential for unbelief, and so we have this ever-present need. It's an ever-present need. It's a time of need. And when we get to the end of the chapter, we find out that we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Well, guess what? What we're going to learn by the time we get to verse 16 is that now is the time. It's always the time. We are always in that time of need because the ever-present snare, that ever-present potential for unbelief, there's never a moment that we leave our sin nature behind until we leave our sin nature behind and go to be with the Lord. All right. So as long as we're still walking this earth in these fallen bodies, we are fallen bodies in a fallen world. And so every moment is this time of need. Without the sanctified fear, we have a certain fear. 
And the Bible uses the same word for fear. If we're not fearing the Lord, we have another fear we've got to worry about. And that's the wrong kind of fear. That's to be fearful of that certain terrifying expectation of judgment that uh, we'll deal with in, uh, in chapter 10. A couple other things we gleaned out of this. Entering God's rest is a promise. It is a promise. Therefore, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest. Do you like the word promise? I love promises. I love promises, especially if they're directed towards me. All right. And that's the nature of it. If it's somebody else's promise, I have no business claiming it. I can't step in and claim that promise for my own if it's not directed towards me. And that's just bad theology. A lot of folks trying to take Israel's promises and steal them and and abscond with them and apply them to the church. And that's a problem. All right. And uh, God can't be faithful to his promise if he made his promise with one person and then switched gears and made pro- and decided to keep that promise with somebody else, right? I mean, this is just the way life works. This is the way the Bible works. This is the way God works. If you t- make wedding vows and you promise your bride, you can't keep that promise with a different woman besides your bride. You promise her, see? And that's uh, that's the nature of it. God made promises made promises to Israel that are not the church's promises. But here's a promise that remains. And it is a promise that actually spans every dispensation. The Sabbath rest principle was earlier than the law anyway. God rested on the seventh day. And we're going to see that the principle of Sabbath rest was applied for all mankind. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so this is a, uh, a promise that transcends all dispensations, all covenants, We have our own application to make that has nothing to do with keeping the law. It has nothing to do with uh, being under Mosaic law. And it has nothing to do with Saturday. (laughs) All right? Our Sabbath rest is day after day as long as it's called today. And we're going to see this. It is a daily Sabbath rest that we have. It's a promise that transcends all dispensations and covenants. It was a promise in Adam's day, a promise in Moses' day, a promise in Joshua's day, a promise in David's day. You realize everything I'm preaching here from Hebrews, the, uh, the uh, author of Hebrews was adapting Psalm 95 for his generation. But don't lose sight of the fact that what was David doing in Psalm 95? <laughs> David was preaching to his generation, telling his generation 400 years after Moses, um, to not harden your heart. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not fall as they fell in the wilderness. And so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. And it remains in our stewardship and our dispensation. <clears throat> we talk about God's promise of rest in Moses and Joshua's day, that it was a spiritual promise linked to a physical promise of physical land. And I think what's sad is that so often Old Testament studies stress the physical. They stress the, you know, they're walking across the, the, the desert. They're entering into the land. They're physically taking occupancy of the land. It's flowing with milk and honey. Um, and all the, the physical aspects of a population, nevertheless, it was a spiritual promise with spiritual commands connected to that. And I uh, took the time to read through Deuteronomy 12 to demonstrate those spiritual promises that were linked to the physical land and where they were supposed to live. Finally, I, I'm just reviewing last week and we're going to move on and gain some new ground here this morning. The Exodus generation of Israel failed to enter God's rest corporately, that's nationally, but The promise that remains for the heavenly people of God must be entered into individually. Okay, now this is a big contrast, and this is one that the Scripture itself makes, and we want to be clear on this. More bad theology comes when this gets confused as well. So it says, let us fear if while a promise remains of entering into his rest, notice, any one of you. Do you see how particular that got all of a sudden? It shifted the focus to an individual application. And you and me and every other human on the planet has to respond to the the revealed Word of God by faith. If we don't respond by faith, then it doesn't profit us. We don't reap what it is that the Father designed for us to reap. But it's on an individual basis. He's not addressing the church corporately at this point. He's not talking to the body of Christ 
corporately. He breaks it down to an individual acceptance by faith or an individual rejection by not faith, right? And so this is what we want to deal with here. And this is where, again, bad theology comes in because some um, denominations and branches of Christendom will actually deny that salvation is an individual faith acceptance. They will deny that an individual is personally born again. And they will stress that our identification with Christ is a corporate identification with Christ. And they stress the body of Christ. And they stress the overall. In fact, this is the the fundamental understanding of of Roman Catholicism. That there is no salvation outside of the, the Roman Catholic Church because it's a corporate redemption in Christ. And if you preach to an individual about believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, that was anathematized at, the, at, uh, at uh, Trent. All right. So when, uh, when the Protestant Reformation was anathematized, we were anathematized in that theology. But it's not just that. I've had Lutherans tell me, I've had Methodists tell me, I've had other folks tell me that that's, that's, uh, I have the flawed soteriology when I individualize it. That if I talk to an individual about believing, that's a flawed soteriology. That the church is a corporate uh, redemption and a corporate uh, calling. Anyway, both are true. We don't want to reject the truth by uh, falling into that either-or trap. Any one of you may seem to have come short of it. And then also the recognize of seeming. That sometimes we don't fall short of it, but we think we do. Okay? Sometimes we don't, but we think we do. And this is a verb for thinking that just assumes something or, or presumes something or supposes something. All right? Of all the different thinking verbs that we have in Greek, this is the one where, well, it just kind of seems that way. All right? And it's a really, it's a lame verb for thinking, but it would seem, it would think, it would, yes, it might seem that we've fallen short of it. Well, think again. Think again. Okay? Because we're in Christ, all right? We're in Christ. And so when you're walking in Christ, when you're in fellowship, when, when you're walking according to the design that the New Testament makes clear, well then guess what? You're in that rest, see? You're walking in His rest. And we're going to define that as well when we talk about the mechanics here. How do I do this? I want to do this today. How do I do this? Well, are you in fellowship? You're already doing it, but you want to do it better. And I'll show you how. All right. Which gets us now to verse 2 in the new material. For indeed, for indeed. This is an old Greek way of saying, are you kidding me? (laughs) All right. You might seem to have come short of it, but let me tell you something. We have had good news preached to us. We are evangelized ones. We are good news preached ones. And it's... um, to try to convey this, it gets a little wordy, it gets a little awkward, and it's kind of a, it's a paraphrastic expression, which is kind of a roundabout way of saying something. And uh, so think about perimeter phrasing, and you can remember periphrastic, okay? So a, a paraphrastic expression is where you're going around and you're kind of finding the long way around to get you there. And by doing that, though, you can really make a point, you can make it powerfully, and that's what the text is doing here. Because it doesn't say that somebody preached the gospel to us, it says we are. It's a verb of being. It's Amy. It's the I am verb of being. And so you and I are. It is a verb of stated being. We are having been evangelized ones. And this, uh, this is important, all right? So, for indeed, we are presently now having been evangelized ones, just as they also were having been evangelized ones. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. So there's a defect that keeps the word from profiting. And the defect is not in God's part. God didn't blow it. The defect is not in, um, in the Word of God's part. It's not the Bible's fault. It's not the Word didn't let them down. See, it's not a manufacturing defect in the Word of God. It's not a particular make and model or year of a car where the manufacturer decided to switch to more environmentally friendly paint. And in an effort to be environmentally friendly, 
they're now spreading those paint flecks all over the world as the environmentally friendly paint just starts flaking off and flaking off and environmentally filling the world. They probably should have kept with uh, the original paint, which wouldn't have been flaking off all over the world. Design flaws. I was illustrating design flaws. Okay? The Word of God has no design flaws. If the Word of God doesn't profit you, that's not the Word of God's fault because all Scripture is what? Profitable. God-breathed and profitable. So, what are we dealing with here? The Exodus generation as a redeemed people had good news of national corporate rest preached to them. This was their promise. This was their good news. All right? Now keep in mind, good news is good news. And different good news can be different, but it's all called good news. And so if, uh, if uh, during the night an angel flew over and 187,000 Assyrians died, then a couple of guys can go tell the town about it, and that's good news. Okay? Or if other things happen, a good crop comes in, that's good news. Or a baby boy is born, that's good news. The, the Bible uses good news in a lot of different contexts. And, and we want to, if, if all we do is just jump to evangelism and, and getting saved, because, you know, when we think uh, evangelism, we think Billy Graham or something, right? We think Evantel. Uh, we got to stop and say, well, wait a minute. What's the good news that they were promised? What's the rest that they were promised? And for them, it was the promise of rest as a redeemed people, having walked through the Red Sea. At, at uh, Sinai, they're being given the law and they're being promised rest. And so uh, we have this here. Uh, let's look back at Exodus 3. We'll take a look at it. Exodus 3. So, um, this is the burning bush, and Moses is receiving his commission, and in the process of this, verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters, for I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians, and that's not all. So deliverance is one thing that he said he was going to do, but what else? and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Hivite and the Jebusite. All right, so this is the promise. And it's a two-sided coin. It's deliverance is the first part, but then bringing them into the land is the second part. All right, and so keep those separate. Don't confuse those. Uh, because even though they failed... They died in the wilderness. They never entered the land. They also never did what? They also never lost their salvation. They also never went back to Egypt. They were never restored back to a bondage uh, relationship. Understand that. So failure to enter rest is not the same as losing your salvation or or going back to a bondage uh, circumstance, a pre-redemption or unredeemed state. They died in the wilderness as a redeemed people. A redeemed people died in the wilderness. And that's what we're being warned against. Because we are a redeemed people. We don't want to die in our spiritual wilderness. We want to enter into the rest that He's designed us for. Uh, still in Exodus. Exodus 33. And notice all those uh, statements were I will statements. I will bring them. I will bring them. Uh, Exodus 33 and uh, by the time we get here, we have the Ten Commandments, we have the golden calf, we've smashed the tablets, Moses is angry. And then uh, they're going to proceed forward. And in Exodus 33, verse uh, 14, well, let's see, back up just slightly. Verse 12, so Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people. But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. So Moses has a bit of a complaint here. 
Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And so this is, this is, I think this is vital. And I think this is important for us to recognize as they're moving on, as this promise is, is stated, look what he says here. But what's Moses complaining about? That this is God's assignment. This is God's business. This is God's work. These are God's people. And I'm just a grace thing. Okay? I found favor in your sight. I'm a grace thing. I want to keep being a grace thing. I want more grace. All right. And I want information. You yourself have not let me know. In other words, if I'm your grace tool, if I'm your agent, I want to know more information. I want to be able to have the Word of God. Why? What's the Word of God going to do for me? Well, it's going to profit me when I unite it with faith. See? All right. So verse 13, Therefore I pray you, if I found favor in your sight, I want more favor in your sight. Let me know your ways that I may know you so that I may find favor in your sight. This is all kind of a giveaway for how the how-to is. How do we enter into his rest? We learn his ways. We, we know him. We rest in what he's doing. So verse 14, and he said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Here's a promise of rest. He's already a redeemed person. He's not yet in the land. And here's a promise of rest. And notice Is it a national corporate promise or is it tailored specifically to Moses in his prayer request, Moses in his prayer uh, desire to know God better? It's individual. So um, he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, then do not lead us up from here. (laughs) All right. If, If this doesn't happen, I'm not going. If it's not a grace thing, I don't want it. And so it's uh it's a powerful chapter. All right. So the Exodus generation, as a redeemed people, has had good news of national corporate rest preached to them, and then Moses has a specific personal promise preached to him. Yet, in the face of conflict, in the face of conflict, they feared giants instead of fearing the Lord. They came face to face with the giants and they lost their fear of the Lord. They feared the giants instead of fearing the Lord. Because God said, I'm giving you this land. They, they got to the land, and they saw the giants. And so what do they immediately do? Give up. Panic, right? Colonel Theme talked about panic palace. <laughs> Just enter into panic palace. Just immediately lose faith. Wait a minute. God knows all of this. He's not ignorant. He knew those giants were there when he made the promise. Why are you bothered with how hard God made it on himself to keep his own promises? Does that bother you at all? And does God need extra help? Does He need you to help keep His promises? Yeah. <laughs> did He need your help parting the Red Sea? You know, what did, what did you contribute to this? See, walking by faith is just watching what He said and praying and celebrating and worshiping, looking upon it and saying, behold, it is all very good. It's what God did in the very first Sabbath ever. He took a day to rest and reflect and look back and be impressed with himself. We need to do that. Take a day. How about today? Look around and be impressed with God today. That's your Sabbath rest. All right. Well, they didn't do that. When we get to Numbers 13, it's obvious. Numbers 13. And... um, it's a fun chapter. Uh, we have all the names that are uh, sent out, all the spies. Each one is a prince of his tribe, and uh, they're sent forth to spy out the land. And uh, the only two we know are uh, <laughs> Joshua, the son of Nun, he's called Hosea here in verse 8, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh in, uh, in verse 6. I taught a Sunday school class once where I challenged the children to name the other 10 spies and uh, only one child. I, I bribed them with an ice cream cone if they, uh, any, any child who could do it. And uh, one, one of them did. So I, uh, I shelled out the money for the ice cream cone. But um, there it is. Anyway, they come back with a bad report. 
And when they come back, um, they were supposed to report about uh, the land and who's living there and, and uh, the, all the, uh, the details. Is it fat? Is it lean? Are there trees or no trees? Bring back some, uh, some samples. And so that's what they do. The problem is there's giants in the land. And uh, so the spies return in verse 25 from spying out the land at the end of 40 days. They proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron to all the congregation of the sons of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And this is the famous Kadesh Barnea rebellion. And um, they brought back word to them to all the congregation, showed them the fruit of the land, told them and said, we went into the land where you sent us. It certainly does flow with milk and honey. This is the fruit. Nevertheless, there's always a but, right? Yeah, but. The people who live in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there, the sons of Anak. These were giants. These were Nephilim giants. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev and the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites are living in the hill country and the Canaanites are living by the sea and by the side of the Jordan. And so this is their problem. And this is the uh, failure that we all go through on occasion. This is the, well, I would love to obey you except I have this problem. Okay, well, it's nice that you promised me this, but I don't think you can do it or I don't think I can do it or any other expression of negative volition, of an absence of faith, because I lose my fear of the Lord. So Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up. This is another uh, way to say, are you kidding me? Look at this. Look at how great this is. God promised us this land. We're going to win this battle. You know, think about it. Do you like knowing in advance that you're the winner? You know, can you know in advance that you're the winner? Well, you can if God promised you're the winner. And if God goes before you and God's giving you this land. So if you know that it's guaranteed that you can't lose, don't you want to go up against the biggest army you can? How spectacular is that going to be? Give me some big giants, okay? Caleb's excited. Yeah. You know, if you know that you can't lose the next... Of course, you're not gamblers. You would never go to Las Vegas or anything. But if you knew that you could not lose the next bet, would you bet $10 or $100 or $1,000? What would you what would you scrape together if you knew for a fact that you cannot lose? Okay? Now I see the wheels turning now. A little carnal mind is going, getting all. But if you know militarily that you're going to win this next war, because God's going before you and God promised that you can't lose this war. Then, uh, hey, yeah, bring on the giants. Bring them all on. Who cares? Boy, this is going to be spectacular. Are you guys afraid of Armageddon? Knowing that we're going to ride white horses, we're going to be following our Savior riding on, on, white, on His white horse, that He is going to shatter the forces of Satan, that He is going to lay hold of Antichrist, that we win, Right? Anybody afraid of Armageddon? I'm not. Man, I think that's great. And I'm not too confident on the horse yet, but I figure I'm going to have a resurrected, glorified body. Even if I fall off, it can't hurt. All right? Anyway, I'm not afraid of Armageddon any more than these guys should have been afraid at Kadesh Barnea, but they were. They lost their fear of the Lord. So Caleb quiets the people before Moses and said, we should by all means go up and take possession of it. We will surely overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against this people. They are too strong for us. See? Problem in their logic. It's not our ability. It's not our strength. It's God's promise that we should be claiming here. Our ability and our strength is irrelevant. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out. And so uh, there it is. The people, uh, we saw our men of great size. We saw the Nephilim. There's Nephilim after the flood. How'd they survive? Well, they came back. How'd they come back? The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight so that we were in their sight. And so there it is. Now it crosses into chapter 14. It goes on down 
Uh, there's one other attempt that's made here. Joshua tries to speak up. Um, they're going to fire Moses and, and try to appoint a new leader. And uh, so Joshua's going to speak up and they're going to tear their clothes and say, quit rebelling against the Lord. You're not rebelling against Moses. You're rebelling against the Lord. And um, do not fear the people. Verse 14.9 says, do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land. They will be our prey. We're the winners here. They just look big and tough. We're going to win. Their protection has been removed from them. We learn that uh, angelic forces sweep through and all of their demonic and strength and demonic empowerment, all their courage is gone. They're shaking in their boots by the time uh, the, the Jewish humans walk across the river. All right. But all the congregation said to stone them with stones. <laughs> so the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel. And this is, this is the issue here. Now notice, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people spurn me? Well, good question. How long is God's long-suffering? <laughs> he is slow to anger, but how long are they going to keep provoking him? Because eventually slow to anger runs out and the wrath of God gets applied. How long will they not believe me? Not believe me, despite all the signs which I have performed in their midst. So accountable for their lack of faith because he's demonstrated, demonstrated, and demonstrated his power. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. And yet, now they won't believe the promise. So I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I will make you, talking to Moses here, into a nation greater and mightier than they. And Moses said to the Lord, nope, nope, can't do that. If you do that, the Egyptians are going to hear about it. And here's what they're going to say. They're going to say, you could bring them out of Egypt, but you couldn't bring them forward and you couldn't bring them into the land. Because you had a promise with two sides to it. You had a redemption side to it and you had a rest side to it. And you were great on the redemption side. Now the Egyptians are going to say, you couldn't, you couldn't do the second part. And your name will be brought into disrepute. They will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O oh Lord, are in the midst of this people. So um, this becomes the application there. Look, you did it. You have to do this. You have to do this. So Anyway, uh, the, the confession works, the plea works, God listens to Moses, he forgives. He says in verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. Notice that? It's causative in response to Moses' prayer. It's causative. He didn't earn it, didn't deserve it, but it's causative, it's contingent upon Moses' prayer. But indeed, as I live, the God who cannot lie takes a vow and he stakes it on his own life, the God who cannot die. It says, as I live, says the Lord, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and the wilderness yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not listened to my voice. They shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. This is what Hebrews talks about when it says, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. All right, so this is the Exodus generation. This is what we have to warn ourselves against. Why? Because we are the body of Christ. As a redeemed people of God, we have good news of rest preached to us. Good news of spiritual, mental attitude, rest. And we don't have to go live in a land grant. We don't have to go live in a particular geography in order to enjoy the spiritual blessings of this rest. Remember, Israel had spiritual promises but they were tied to a physical possession of the land we don't have that we don't have a land grant we don't have the physical possession of any land that's promised to us we are a heavenly people and so we can have this rest today all day every day right here right now even in texas okay or washington state or wherever the lord takes you the body of christ as a redeemed people of god have good news of rest preached to us. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Matthew eleven twenty eight. What does it say? What does it say? I'm in the wrong chapter. Here we go. 
Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Is he talking to unbelievers there? Or is he talking to born-again believers that ought to be walking by faith? Born-again believers that ought to be... He's not going to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. you kidding? All right. Take my yoke upon you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. This is not a Billy Graham evangelism. I've heard it used that way. But this is for believers who need to be walking with the Lord, who need to be walking in that rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Remember Moses wanted to learn? Moses wanted to, uh, to know God better. So what happens here when you're yoked together with Jesus Christ? Spend some time with Jesus and see how well you get to know Him. Okay? Desert Storm, I drove 26,000 miles in a Humvee with my first sergeant. You, you get to know a guy driving 26,000 miles in a Humvee. All right? And uh, he was a believer, and we had a lot of prayer together, and we could sing hymns together and talk about different things. If you're yoked together... Remember, the yoke has two holes in it for two oxen. So take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, you will find rest for your souls. You want to enter into his rest? Walk with Jesus. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. We continuously presently are having been evangelized ones. And this is, again, back to that periphrastic expression uh, the, the verb, the finite verb in, in Hebrews 4.2 is you are. You presently are. All right? It's not, uh, it's not uh, the evangelizing. Now, the, the, the verb euangelizomai is there, but it's there as a participle. And it's there as a, as a perfect participle, a perfect passive participle even. Okay? So, um, how do I explain this? All right. The, um, in a roundabout kind of way. So I'm, uh, I'm going to spend about a minute confusing everybody. Okay? And so that's going to be an active voice on my part. I'm going to be confusing. So I'm going to spend about a minute confusing the entire room. Now when I'm done doing that, I will no longer be actively confusing anybody. However, Everybody that went through that process is going to be sitting here in a present continuous state. You will be, continuously, presently be, right? I am, you are, we are, they are. It's a state of being. And so you are going to be having been confused ones, right? In my illustration, you will all presently be having been confused ones. And depending on how successful I was at the time, your status could last a while, quite a while, <laughs> even eternally. Fifty years from now, you may think back, and what in the world was he talking about? Okay? And this is the point. Because God made a promise. God issued good news. We received the good news. We are the recipients of the good news message. So we are having been evangelized ones. And we should presently and continuously be having been evangelized ones. Having been good news preached people, right? The good news was preached to us. It's passive voice. We didn't do the preaching. It was preached to us. We had good news preached to us. And we are presently having been evangelized. I don't want to use the word evangelized because then you start thinking Billy Graham again. All right? We have had good news of rest preached to us. And that's what we are. We are. Okay? Now, is God a liar? Is God shady? Is God unreliable? Eh. Has uh, Have we ever had people make promises to us and Based on their proven track record, we're rather skeptical. We take it with a grain of salt or a hundred grains of salt. Okay. Yeah, you've promised that, but you promised other things. And yeah, well, heard that before. Okay. And so with, with those kind of shady, unreliable people, then I might want to tell me again. 
Could you promise me that one more time? Can you promise that some more? Can you add some evidence to that promise? All right? That's not God. And so we don't need constantly repeated promises of rest. We can receive it one time and then eternally we can be those that have received the good news. And that's who we are. We are the body of Christ. We are church age believer priests. We are those that have received the good news that being yoked to Jesus Christ, we have this rest. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. We've had rest promised to us. And we don't need it to be promised over and over and over again. We presently are, having been promised ones, having been good news preached. So what's stopping us? <laughs> are we waiting for another promise? Are we waiting for a better promise? Do we need to see some signs first? You know, I'm a saved one. He's already promised me everything. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly place is in Christ. What else do I need? I'm going to trust him today. I'm going to walk with him today. I'm going to enter into that rest today. There's nothing else he can promise me to add to what he's already given me, which is everything. There's a similar construction in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, in case you're interested. Ephesians 2, 8. And everybody knows Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? Who has not memorized Ephesians 2, 8 and 9? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Let me unpack that for you. It's a very similar paraphrastic expression whereby having been saved is not the main verb. The main verb is you are. You presently are. It is a continuous action, present state of being. You presently are. Okay? And so think about it. Think about the eternality of that. Think about the, the duration of that. Think about the glory of that. Think about, you know, when God says, I am, does that get your attention? And that's significant. I am presently, continuously, state of being, that's God, the I am. Well, here's, a, here's an I am that we can state. Because the verb here in verse 8 is you are. You presently are. For by grace, all y'all, second person plural, for by grace, all y'all, presently now, today, are continuously having been saved ones. Does that make a difference? This is a powerful difference. Because the having been saved is perfect passive participle. It is past completed action, present ongoing results. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. It's done. Tetelestai, it is finished. Another perfect tense, right? It is finished. It is written. We are having been saved ones. Presently, continuously, forever. Anyway, it's a, it's a powerful way. So this is what we're dealing with here. All right, now, why... Does the profitable word not profit? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16. If all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, then why doesn't this profit? Well, we're told it's because it's not united by faith in those who heard. The promise went forth. The word went forth. But remember, communication is, uh, is a two-party process. Unless you're speaking to yourself. <laughs> okay. Normally, in communication, there is a speaker and there is a hearer. There is a person that is making the promise and there is a person that is hearing the promise. And to be fair, as human beings, uh, communication breakdown can happen in both places. <laughs> and sometimes when they happen in both places, it's spectacular. <laughs> you know, a husband says something, but it didn't come out the right way. And then the wife heard it and she heard the wrong thing anyway. So even if she would have heard it, had it come out the right way, it still would have been bad. So you've got a breakdown of communication on both sides, speaking it and hearing it. Okay? Now on God's side of things, everything he does is perfect. The word is always perfect. The world always is profitable. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable. There is not an unprofitable verse in our Bible. However, 
The Word of God does not automatically profit you if you don't accept it on the faith basis. If you don't accept it, learn it, submit to it, let it dwell richly within you, and start using it. You know? It's like uh, if you leave it at home, what good does it do you? Anyway, it's, uh, we talk about this in different contexts. Uh, in, in a concealed carry kind of a way. You know, that church in Sutherland Springs had some concealed carry permit holders. They didn't bring it that day. They left it at home. What good did it do them? Okay. They had an effective weapon. They just didn't have it available. Same thing. We've got the Word of God, but it doesn't profit us if we don't use it. If you don't use the Word of God, why would you expect it to, to profit? Why would you expect it to do anything? in spite of the design of how it was designed to be used. It was designed to be employed on the faith basis. Same reason why the good news does not save, even though it has the power to do so. Romans 1.16 It is able... I like these able words. It is the dunamis, it is the power of God unto salvation, and so it's able... A lot of times if you've got dunamis, you've got, or dunamao, you've got, you've got power. You're able to do something. The word is prophet able. Able to profit. There's a lot of able that, that aren't automatic, say. And whose fault is that? Well, if the gospel doesn't save you, is that the gospel's fault? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power, it is the able... <laughs> The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's your faith. If you don't respond by faith, does the gospel save you? And if you don't respond by faith and when the gospel doesn't save you, is that the gospel's fault? Whose fault is that? Where's the breakdown happen? Well, the person that heard. So we have the warning today if you would hear his voice. Do not harden your heart as they did in the wilderness okay and so uh, it's if it's not profitable it's not the word's fault for not being profitable see failure to accept and enter into rest it's a lack of faith and it in no way diminishes the value of the promise failure to accept and enter into rest is a lack of faith. It happens because of faith. It happened for them, it happens for us. And it in no way diminishes the value of the promise. The promise remains. The promise remains. And and a little bit later here in Romans, we see this in Romans chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. It doesn't diminish the promise. The promise isn't faulty. We don't need a better gospel than more people will believe. Okay, we have the gospel. And there's nothing wrong with the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. But if they don't accept it, if they don't receive it, if they don't respond by faith, is that the gospel's fault? Romans chapter 3. What advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, and I like the way Paul lists a first and then he never gets to a second or a third, not for several chapters. He finally gets around to a second later on, but not in this chapter. Um, But first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Wow, what a benefit. Here is the Jewish people in the ancient world and Hebrew prophets are recording Hebrew scriptures. Where else would you want to live in 1000 B.C.? (laughs) <laughs> all right do you want to be a a greek do you want to be a roman do you want to be an egyptian or a babylonian what do you want to be in that day and age when it's the hebrew people receiving hebrew scriptures i want to be a hebrew i want to be a jewish person you talk about a great advantage now does that because they had the scriptures and they had the prophets and they had the does that mean everybody got saved automatically and they just you know they did everything right Now, sadly, they had the Hebrew prophets, they had the Hebrew scriptures, they had God dwelling among them, and for much of their history, they became bigger idolaters than 
all those other Gentile nations around them. How sad is that? Okay. Was that the fault of the Word? Did the Word let them down? Not at all. Does not diminish the promise. So what then? What then? Romans 3.3 3. If some did not believe and now here too, what do we have? We have a fine-tuning of the, of the context whereby we recognize there's a national calling. There's also individual responsibilities. Individuals must receive eternal life by grace through faith, no matter what their nation's doing. So what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Does it nullify the promise? Does it make God less faithful? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man a liar, as it is written. So the breakdown is not, it's not a problem with the gospel. It's not a problem with the Word of God. If the Word of God doesn't profit, you're not walking by faith. You're not accepting it by faith, and you're not living it by faith. That's where the breakdown takes place. So failure to accept and enter rest is a lack of faith. For we... Oh, I don't have this next slide ready. All right, when we come back next week, we're going to see how we enter that rest. For we who believe enter that rest, as he has said. And we're going to talk about we who believe and the present tense of entering. And uh, what does it mean to apply the word of God in our testing? We get to enter that rest, just as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay? We're not them. We enter into his rest and we're pleased to do so. All right. Let me close with prayer and then we'll transition on into our uh, communion table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings that we have to study the Word of God, to study the living and abiding Word of God, Father, that was is just as alive today as it was back then. And Father, uh, today we have the issue in front of us. Are we going to hear your voice are we going to harden our hearts? Are we going to unite by faith the Word of God that's gone forth? And Father, we are having been evangelized ones. We are the recipients of your promised rest. Recipients of the promise. And so we want to enter into that rest today, right here, right now. We want to stop from our works even as you stop from yours. And Father, show us what, what it takes to do this. Open our eyes to see how simple this application is. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you for the work that he accomplished. His tetelestai statement of victory, it is finished. We get to commemorate that today, Father. We get to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And I thank you for the blessing that we have as having been saved ones and having been evangelized ones that we can operate in that faith rest today. So Father, uh, Continue to bless our time together as you've blessed our study. Bless our worship. Bless our communion. Bless all that's done for the glory of Jesus Christ. I thank you in his most precious and holy name. Amen.